Our scripture reading today is from Acts 1, 1 through 11. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them, and after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Michael and Melanie. Good morning again, everybody. Everybody doing okay this morning? It's kind of a gloomy, dreary day. Normally, we open those curtains. I'm afraid if we did, the room would just get darker. <laughs> so let's, let's not. I want to ask you to think about something this morning as I spend some time talking about these opening verses. Um, and what I want to ask you to think about is I want you to think about the the journey of faith uh, that has been in your life. I want you to think about like when, when if, if, now I'm not assuming everybody in the room is a Christian. Uh, maybe you're not. And if you're not, we're really glad that you're here. Um, if you are a Christian, I, I want you to think about when, when did you know that you were? Uh, when did you know that your faith was your own? Um, and I'm not talking about necessarily a, Paul on the road to Damascus kind of moment where, you know, lightning strikes. And it, but was there a, a period of time in your life where it was particularly poignant to you that you had become a follower of Jesus Christ? And what was going on then? What was that like? And then how has that kind of played itself out in your life? Is your story one of, I had this moment or I had this relationship, or I had this church that I was a part of, or I had this campus ministry that I attended, and, and, and something in me kind of came alive. Something in me sort of caught on fire. And, and ever since then, it changed everything. And it's been this trajectory of, of trying to learn Scripture and grow and follow Jesus and, and, and you know, mature into this faith that was given me. Or maybe, maybe your story is one where you would say, 
I had seasons where my soul was, was kind of aflame uh, with, with the beauty and the wonder of the gospel. And then, and then life has happened and, and things have gotten hard and complicated and, you know, struggling to make ends meet. And it feels like it's kind of boxed out a lot of the wonder of the gospel. And instead, um, I, I'm still doing the things that we're supposed to do. It, it, you know, I, I still come to church and things like that. But, but man, I don't, I don't know how, how much it's taken a hold of me these days. Or maybe you're somebody who, who would say, I've been going through the motions my whole life. Um, you know, you, you wouldn't be able to distinguish me from somebody who is uh, a passionate follower of Jesus if you were to just look at the data. Because I'm in church and I've underlined some things in my Bible and, and, I, and I'll volunteer to serve in the kids' ministry. Uh, but, but, but I don't know if I've ever really felt this, this come alive. I, one of the joys for me as a pastor is I get to sit down with you and I get to hear stories, you know, and I think of, of the, the, the range of experiences that people have had um, and how life can take turns uh, and, you know, addictions can come in or doubts can creep in, questions, existential stuff, you know, where you, you just don't know what, what's up anymore and, you know, you know, things that you used to be so confident and settled in, uh, you, you question now. Think about that. What is that for you? I had a friend in high school. Um, I want to tell you about his name was Joe, Joe Abbey, uh, A E B I. Uh, in 2010, Joe died from cancer. But back in the 90s, in the early 90s, when I was a high school kid and going into college, Joe was about three years ahead of me in high school, and he was a legend in my mind. And the reason Joe was a legend in my mind is because I was a, I played guitar. I played electric guitar. I had a floating tremolo system, a Floyd Rose on my electric guitar. And I, if you know, you know what I'm talking about. And it was awesome. And it was at the right moment too, because it was in the era of Def Leppard and Bon Jovi and Striper. And it all just made sense. It was the kind of music that the world looked at completely unironically and said, yep, this is the best we have to offer right now. And Joe was a fantastic guitar player for small town Indiana that I was a part of. And so I knew Joe from a distance and I looked up to him and I thought, this guy, he had long hair, he wore a leather jacket, he had this really cool guitar, he could play it well. And I just, you know, but he was also known for being a partier. And he was known for being this wild kid. And my parents had started, uh, a lot of the youth ministry that I had when I was a kid is, uh, by the way, I have no idea how long the story is going to be. And I'm making, I'm, it's not in my notes, but it's what we're doing. Um, one of the youth ministries that my parents had for me and my brother is we just went to every Christian concert that came to Indiana. And they all came to Indiana because it was driving distance. And so Nashville to Indiana was no problem. And so we would go and they would buy a block of tickets and they'd say, invite your friends. And so we'd go to these concerts. Well, eventually my dad thought, you know, I'd like to actually promote concerts. And then we can bring to, to our little town some of these bands that we love so much. And there was this Christian heavy metal band that was all the rage at the time. Um, you've never heard of them. 
But we somehow got connected with them, and they came and played at my high school. Guys, they played at my high school. <laughs> and Joe came. He came to the concert because he heard there was a heavy metal band playing at the high school. And he became a Christian through that concert and found me. And I invited him to the youth group that I went to. And he and I, our friendship was one where we were kind of new Christians together at the same time. And we became inseparable brothers. And we spent all this time together. And I think about that friendship and how it feels like it was forever. But I went to college. It was only a few years, maybe, that we were, that we were together. But we were together all the time. And one of the things that, that marked that relationship that I think about often is that what joined us together was not electric guitars. And it wasn't heavy metal. It was the gospel. And so the nature of our friendship was one of wanting to grow in our relationship with Jesus together. To share experiences, to, to ride together to youth group, to go to concerts together, and all of these different things. And I think about that and I think, do, do, you, do you recognize how distinctly unique that is in this world? That Christian friendship is built on growing together spiritually. I mean, we have things in common, and we do things in common, and we, you know, we're, we're going to go on this men's hike in a few weeks, which I'm going to send an email with information about that this week. I hope, I hope at least 45 of you can come. Um, <laughs> otherwise, I have to rent another campsite, but I'd be glad to do that for 46 and 47. Um, but anyway... <laughs> But our friendships and our relationships are not built in hobbies. And they're not built in, like, you know, a shared interest in, in music or whatever. But really, like, we received people as new members this morning. And, and one of the things that's happening there that we're recognizing as a church is, okay, these are folks who are joining this body of believers who gather together more regularly with one another than most of us do with our extended family. You know, we'll see each other so many more times this year than you may see your own parents or your own kids if they've, if they've left the nest. And this is a community that we're a part of. And we're united and bound together by the content of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And friends, that is no small thing. And it's kind of how the book of Acts starts, and then it just stays there the entire time. And that is, it marries together the content of the gospel, the doctrine of Christianity, with the experience of living as one. And so that's what I want to talk about this morning, is I want to talk about the marriage of those two things, where doctrine and experience come together and how they rely on one another. So let me tell you exactly where we're going, uh, where the focus is here, um, the main idea that I want to develop, and it's this, that the content of the gospel, that's doctrine, 
uh, what it teaches and experience what it makes of us calls us to be then witnesses, people who are on a mission. So if you're Christian, it's not a private faith. We said that earlier. It's, it's something where it is yours for the purpose, at least partially for the purpose, of being known for being a Christian. And so what Acts does is it takes, the book of Acts, is it takes doctrine in one hand and experience in the other, and it joins them together. And it joins them in a way where we see a range of the experiences that we will have with one another. Um, Triumph, sorrow, struggle, plenty, want, sickness, health, all these things. It joins these things together. And then we see then how, how we are then to move through this world as people who care about truth, the doctrine part, and also seek to practically live it out in a way that engages both the mind and the heart. And so, and then I'm going to close with a with kind of a, a sort of a cycle of evangelism, how this how evangelism works when we're when we're thinking about this. Um, so let me tell you what makes me tick as a pastor. Uh, it doesn't give me a tick. It makes me tick. It's something that 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 makes that makes me there's something I pray for us. And it's this, is I want people who are a part of this church to know Jesus as he is presented in Scripture. That's what I want. I want us to know the Christ of the Bible. And so I want to frame this desire in light of the opening verses of the book of Acts because that's what the book of Acts is after. He says in the first book, O Theophilus, the word Theophilus, it might be a name or it might be a description of a person because what it means is lover of God. So he may be saying, O lover of God, or he may be saying, O Theophilus, Theo for short, maybe. Um, And so he opens this. And so um, one thing we know is whether it's to an individual or just somebody generically is that the book is meant for more than one person. It's meant for all who follow Christ. And he refers to this former book in the opening verse. That former book is the, the Gospel of Luke. Um, so Luke wrote Acts, and uh, this is kind of volume two in a two-volume series that he wrote. Uh, and in that first book, he opens that book by saying um, that he is explaining what he's writing so that his reader might grasp the content of the story of the gospel, that it might be the backbone of the reader's faith. So he takes time to lay out the gospel of Luke to say, this is what you need to know about Jesus, who he was, what he did. And so Luke's gospel was written to unveil all that Jesus did and all that he taught until the day that he was taken up to heaven. Acts then starts there. It picks up with, when Jesus is taken up into heaven. It takes us into how the church followed Jesus and how they embraced his call to be witnesses in the world. And so Acts is a unique book. It's a fun book. I really like this book. It's got some drama in it. Uh, It's got some uh, twists and some turns, a lot of navigating church and state stuff that's in here, uh, a lot of courage, and also a lot of the uh, frailty and failings 
of the people of God that's all in here, but it's unique in that it is the only narrative book in the New Testament that comes after the resurrection. There are narrative portions of other epistles here and there, little bits and details, but this is a narrative following what the Gospels teach us. And what it is, is it's the story of the early church. And so in a manner of speaking, it's our origin story um, as a church, right? And so Acts begins where both Matthew and Luke end, and that is with this great commission from Jesus, where he tells his people as he's about to ascend, he tells them, you will be my witnesses, which is a strange way to say it. He doesn't say, I want you to go be my witnesses. He just says, you will be. Because, why? Because the world will look at Christ followers and say that's what a Christ follower is. And so he says, you will be my witnesses. Which is why doctrine is so important. Because you are going to be a witness for something in your life. Everybody is. Everybody's a witness for something. And so that's what the book of Acts is doing. For the Christian church, the book of Acts is then this, it's, it's our story. And what it's doing is it's laying out the content of essential Christianity, what makes for Christian faith, and then also the narrative of the early church, their triumphs, tragedies, both local and global, and these responses to the gospel. And the two are always interwoven, the doctrine, what is taught, and the experience, what happened. And the same is true for us, doctrine. In the book of Acts, you read the first sermons ever preached in the early church. And they're there like long form. They're written out. Peter stood up and he addressed the room and here's what he said. And then a chapter and a half later, the sermon ends and people are mad, right? And, and it's, but it's there. Like the sermons are here and it's doctrine. What is Christianity anyway? And we also get experience. How did they, and therefore how should we, live in a world that is hostile to Christ, and how did they, and how should we, cultivate community when that's the case? If we want to grow in the gospel, we have to be people who care about both of these things. If we want to grow, if Joe and I wanted to grow in the gospel, we had to be people who cared about the experience of living as Christians, and also the content of what Christianity teaches, the doctrine and the experience. Doctrine matters, and it matters because every single follower of Jesus Christ is called to bear witness to him, and the gospel is a gospel of particular content. There is a particular story being told. It's not a general, well, God just wants you to try your best and be a good person. And No, 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 no. That is not the message of the gospel. Christianity tells a particular story with particular implications rooted in history that speak to our deepest desires and longings as human beings to be known and loved by our maker. So the doctrine matters, but the experience matters too, because our doctrine points to a dynamic, ongoing relationship, not only with the living God, but also with his people, always. There is no case in scripture to isolate yourself from the body of Christ. There is none. And if you find yourself in a position where you think, I've had it with the church, I can't be a part of that Can I humbly suggest that that might be one of the most arrogant positions you could ever take? 
is that there's something about you that transcends and is greater and more enlightened and more wise than the entire body of Christ on earth. Yes, there's a lot of mess in the church and a lot of pride and a lot of ugliness and a lot of scandal and a lot of abuse and a lot of terrible things that happen. But the church does not stand and fall on the reputations or the conduct of individuals. The church stands or falls by the lordship of Christ who preserves the body of Christ as one of the great gifts given to those who would follow him. And so our experience matters because we're called to this ongoing relationship with his people. Christianity isn't just lived in our heads and it's not just lived out in a classroom, but it's lived out in all of life, which is designed to be relational. And so if you approach doctrine, for example, as something that you can truly hold outside of the experience of being in the body of Christ, then you haven't really understood the doctrine because all of the doctrine speaks of you in a plural way. And if you just pursue experiences with God as the backbone of your faith, and say, for example, call hikes in the woods your church, then you will have no categories through which to interpret the doctrines of the church, and you will lack foundation and support when sorrows like sea billows roll into your life, which they will, because one of the things the Lord tells us is you need each other. And so there's this union of doctrine and experience. Doctrine informs and gives categories for our experience, and experience gives our doctrine breath. It gives it life. It keeps us from dead academia. So Going back to high school uh, with my friendship with Joe, we were part of a a non-denominational charismatic church. I was raised in the Catholic church by parents who became Christians when I was about five years old, so we weren't culturally Christian in any way, shape, or form. Uh, But they heard the gospel in the Catholic church, and so all growing up from the time I was in elementary school through high school, I went to Mass every Sunday. When I was a sophomore, I also started going to this charismatic church down the street because in small town Indiana, there weren't a lot of choices, but this church happened to have a really fun youth group uh, with kids who were really serious about their faith and loved hanging out together. And so it was one of the most exciting periods of my life. This was a time in my life when I was devouring scripture. My faith was new and I had a sense of wonder about it and I was experiencing this deeper sense of belonging than I had ever known anywhere in my life and I loved that church, I still do. And we were a bunch of kids full of zeal. Like we were dancing in the aisles and I began to think as I saw this zeal on display with my peers, I began to think this must be the sort of worship that God loves most. This kind of unhindered free-for-all of just unfettered joy because it's so experiential, we're in it. And so I took some pride in being non-denominational as though we were somehow less bound to man-made systems. And I would say things like, who needs denominations? I've got the Bible. I just follow the Bible. 
And then in college, something happened, and that is I developed a taste for studying theology, and that got that complicated everything, because I started reading dead guys uh, who said, actually, it's a pretty intricately woven tapestry of things, these doctrines of the church. And I, I kind of got into that, and I started reading more, and I started to look at the charismatic experience I'd been having and thinking, whoa, whoa, whoa wait a minute, what, what are we doing? What are we thinking? And I started to say, how could God delight in chaos like that? It's got to be orderly, right? It's so uh, experiential, which was the thing I loved before. And now it's like the part where I was like, ugh. And so what I did is I, I ran to the other end of that continuum, embracing this idea that doctrinal certainty was available if I'd just apply myself to it. We could crack the code. My system of doctrine could be watertight, and you know what? I wouldn't have any more doubt, right? You ask me a question, I will answer it, you know? How could a good God cause so much suffering, allow so much suffering in the world to happen? Oh, let me just, you know, dissect the premises built into your question first, you know? Anyway, maybe you don't know. I, I'm going back. I'm reverting back to that muscle memory that I had there. Um, but I began to see denominations not as suspect anymore, but as the outcome of hard-fought and surprisingly sincere attempts of believers to bind themselves to biblical truth and to declare the standards to which they wanted to be held accountable. We call this being confessional now. And I still believe a lot of that. I still am that they still see that. I'm part of a denomination. I'm a Presbyterian on purpose, you know. But that was a time when I started believing that there exists such a thing, or I stopped believing that there existed such a thing as a truly non-denominational church, and that every church embraces some sort of doctrinal standard that carries with it a particular interpretation of Scripture. And so to say, well, I just follow the Bible as a defense of non-denominationalism is naive at best, and is deeply arrogant at worst. If the implication is, I follow the Bible better than anyone who belongs to a denomination, which is kind of where I was. But to look over those two cliffs of the charismatic free-for-all experience and the more doctrinally rigid experience, you see, right, how easy it is to become proud, how easy it would be to become self-righteous and smug. And I've been those things, and I am those things, and more. But if the gospel calls us to bear witness to the work of Christ, then certainly part of the lifelong testimony is that he is continually working, and that he's changing us, and he's growing us, and he's making us more like him. And we see and we realize, and we're going to see this in the book of Acts, that the mission is not to arrive in this life, but to embrace the reality of being pilgrims on a spiritual journey. But even then, we're not pilgrims without a map, right? We have a call, we have a mission, and we have blessed, sacred doctrine. The gospel is not empty. And so Jesus calls us to be his witnesses in the world. In this passage, there are two promises that Jesus gives the church. The first is he says, you will receive power. 
the power of his Holy Spirit. This means that God will give us everything we need for everything he's called us to do and to be as his people in this world. And so these are Jesus' parting words. He says, you will receive the Holy Spirit. I'm gonna give you what you need for what I've called you to do. And the second promise is you will be my witnesses. It means we're not simply to ascend to a certain system of belief, but we're called to then be people with a message. We're called to be Christians publicly. We're called to be people where the gospel flows out of us. And when you think about the term witness, it's been co-opted into Christianity as being, well, a witness is just somebody who talks about Jesus all the time. But if you think about what a witness is, think about it in a legal sense. A witness is somebody who has firsthand knowledge of something. And we're bearing witness to that. Joe and I, walking the streets of Tipton, Indiana, are bearing witness to a transformation that happened in our lives through the power of Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit at work in us, and it changed everything. A witness is that. It's somebody with firsthand knowledge. And when we're his witnesses, there's this fascinating little cycle that happens. It's an evangelistic cycle where we are his witnesses to others, and in the process of doing that, we then also grow in our, deeper in our understanding of him. It works like this. There's kind of, if you think of a cycle like a circle, there are kind of three points on it, on, on this, this, uh, this cycle here. And it's, the first is this, is I, I listen to the gospel. I hear. It's uh, what the Shema in, in Deuteronomy, the, the call to worship for the people of God in Deuteronomy 6.4 is hear. Oh, Israel, listen. The Lord your God, the Lord is one, right? We listen to the gospel. So I listen to the gospel, I hear. What does that mean? It means that you put yourself in the path of the content of the gospel, right? So we read scripture and we attend worship gatherings where the word of God is proclaimed and we do this regularly. We become people of the book, right? So we hear, we listen to the gospel, The second part of that cycle is in the act of listening to the gospel, something awakens in me. I'm awakened to the truth that the Holy Spirit is at work in the world and that he's at work on a grand scale. He's working, he's doing things, and we see it in moral collapses and we see it in triumphs, we see it in nagging questions, in illness and grief and floods and all kinds of uh, tragedy, and we also see it in the joys and the wonder of being alive in this world. And so I I listen to the gospel, and in listening, I'm awakened to the truth that God's working. God's at work in the world. And then that leads to the third part of the cycle, which is the Holy Spirit then leads me into telling others about what he's doing. Here are things I'm seeing the Lord do, and it's amazing. It's a wonder. It's a comfort. And so I see what he's doing, and that in turn gives me then, brings me back to the first part of the cycle. It gives me fresh ears to listen again. And to hear. And as I listen and I hear, I discover other ways that the Spirit of God is at work in the world. And I bear witness to that. And I tell others about it. And in the process of doing that, I hear the gospel again and again. And that cycle goes on and on. And what are we doing? We're living as then witnesses to what God is doing. The function of the gospel isn't just to tell us all the things we're not supposed to do. It's not to to shut us down. The function of the gospel isn't to oppose our self-righteousness or humble our self-sufficiency or thwart our best laid plans that have nothing to do with God. It may do that. 
But that's not the function of it. The function of the gospel, both the content and the experience of it, is meant to awaken in us a love of Christ to the point that we are people who just can't remain silent about his love and about his mercy and about his grace and about his affection and about the purpose that we find in Christ alone. And by this, we will live as witnesses to Christ, as people who are not simply telling others the story of Jesus, but the story of Jesus alive and at work in us. And this by the grace of God. That's doctrine and experience together. And as the pastor of this church, this is my desire for each and every one of us. And so my prayer is that God would make us so awake to the doctrine the content of the gospel and the experience of living in the truth of the gospel that we cannot help but be a church that bears witness to both the content and the narrative of our faith. And that that would be the reason why God has put us in cool springs. Let me pray. Father, I I pray that you would continue to guide us as your followers through this world. This world that presents so many things that would compete for our affections. This world that wants to empty the gospel of Jesus Christ of doctrinal content and make it more of a universal feeling and posture of tolerance toward anyone and anything. Lord, we do ask that you would make us to be people who love deeply, not just other Christians, but all people. But also, would you strengthen in us a backbone to live as your followers in this world. And I pray this prayer as a hypocrite, as somebody who asks for this and doesn't do it, not in the ways that you would have me to. And I pray it in the hearing of a room full of hypocrites uh, who would have to confess the same thing. And yet, Lord, our hope doesn't rest in our righteousness, but in yours. And so we thank you for it. Lead us, Lord, as we continue to plant our feet and our roots into this community, strengthen and deepen our relationships with one another, bring us people into our lives when we're navigating things that are unfamiliar, uh, people who have wisdom and who have some experiences. It's one of the great gifts of the church is that we have this community of this shared experience And Lord, would you just deepen our affection for you and our desire to be in your word, to know you as you are, as you're presented in scripture. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.